you kind of have to have it sustainably produced. You can't be halfway. You can't, you're either sustainable or you're not. You're either doing a, a great job in the environment or you're not. You're either um, cognizant of, of good animal welfare or you're not. You can't be halfway. Well, good day, guys, and welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Wadarung people. I recently saw Nikki McKenzie talk during the AFL Sir Doug Nichols round in Geelong. Nikki shared the importance of stories in her work with Warakai Culture. They continue sharing stories that have been passed down over thousands of years and across hundreds of generations. I reckon it's a pretty remarkable thing. I wanted to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. My next guest is Prue Bonfield. For the past 30 or so years, Prue and her husband David have forged an incredible partnership. It's seen them take their business power growth from strength to strength. Having just completed the final stages of their succession plan, which saw the final parts of their property sold off, Prue shares more about what's next for them. She talks about finding her feet, the importance and the superpower in being different and coming at things from a different angle. She's held numerous roles in the industry, including chair of the Australian Beef Sustainability Framework. I could unpack so much here for you, but I'm definitely not going to do that because I'm mindful of your time and Prue is the one you came here to listen to anyway. Her background and her story started off in Mount Morgan, rural Queensland town. She then decided that she'd go against the grain and become a solicitor before moving into corporate business roles. But it was one fateful afternoon at a BNS that Prue met David and kick-started a love that has seen the two of them achieve remarkable things. Hope you guys enjoy the chat. Prue Bonfield, welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Thanks very much, Ollie. Great to be here. And, um, you know, I've, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and, uh, and so I'm very excited to be in the chair here uh, being interviewed by you. It's great. Well, who knows where we'll go. We've got a bit of a plan in terms of what we could talk about, but whereabouts are you at the moment, Prue? Yeah, so I'm, I'm back on farm at Delveen and um, been in COVID uh, isolation in Brisbane for uh, about 10 days. So I'm really happy to be back and looking at some uh, green grass and a bit of fresh air. And, you know, things are just fabulous. As you know, most of the eastern eastern uh, side of Australia has had this magic rain. And look, it is actually a joy just to uh, to be back here. It's lovely. And there's been a bit happening on the home front there for you guys in your business. What's been happening there over the last 12 or 18 months or so? Yeah, so about five years ago, um, we partnered up with um, an institutional investor um, called the New Zealand Superannuation Fund. And uh, I guess that sort of was a bit of a change in our life. Our home property here was not taken into that investment um, partnership. So it's it's remained our, our own um our own uh, farm. So then we leased out to the business and um, and that's been a really terrific sort of partnership over the years. We were working in the business up until about um, 18 months ago and then um, um, in the last month or so we've actually um, we've actually sold the last of our shareholding. So our association with Palgrove is after you know 50 years for my husband and um, 35 for me it's it's come to an end and I mean it, it's kind of Sad, but it's not because we we feel we've passed it over to um, to an investor who can take it somewhere else and and uh, in good shape we hope. So um, Palgrove's here until the end of September uh, when we get our farm back. So we're sort of busily making plans to um, to renew our our um, 
our own farm and 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 us as as producers and change tack a little bit to what we've done in the last sort of you know 45 years or so what what will the future of your little farm look like um, in those next stages yeah look I think the big thing for us was let's take the stress out of our lives <laughs> that was yeah, massive that's um, a good one yeah um, and so you know what does the future look like without stress and so that then um, that then informs what we do in terms of you know um, what we put on our country what how we manage it um, who, who we get to help us manage it and we'd like a very much a, a sort of a, you know one foot here and 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 one foot either traveling the world or um, you know being able to just get away when we want to so we don't want that really um, that really close tie that we always had and then certainly in a seed stock business um, that's magnified it a fair bit because um, that is absolutely seven days a week sort of you know from whatever time in the morning till late at night because um, you're, you're trying to satisfy and, um, and look after the needs of your clients and so that meant a really full-on job with a lot of stress, I might add. Um, and, you know, having been through that wretched, wretched drought um, in 2018 and 2019, um, I think that was a priority for us that when our, our engagement and partnership with New Zealand Superannuation Fund came to an end, we would totally de-stress our lives and, um, and just start to sort of, you know, enjoy it a little bit more and um, take the time um, we'd always had that sort of um, that that the business sort of meant that if we went away, we went away for no longer than sort of ten days. So, um, and then things might start to crumble if 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 we did. But that that you know having that over a lifetime was kind of um, just such a tie. And and so now this, and I, I remember you interviewed Richard Rains and he talked about this freedom. And I now get that freedom. It's it's you wake up in the morning and think well. You know, I get to choose what I do today. Um, I get to choose how I do it and how long it takes me. And, and that's the de-stress part. Um, so the business itself, you know, we've, we've bought some breeders, which is fun. And uh, they're marching, um, marking time on, a, on an adjustment block at the moment. And uh, they'll come on to farm sort of in October, commercial cattle. And um, I know that my husband has a bit of bull producing DNA in him, and so I know that uh, at some point he'll be he'll be producing some bulls, just um, you know, as, as a bit of a hobby. I think more than anything, <laughs> scratching that itch. <laughs> yeah, look, you can't you can't take the bull out of the man, and and it is his passion, and and um, it's really exciting to to be able to kind of do that now on our own terms again, and. Yeah, and looking, you know, uh, that's the farm. And then the, uh, from a business point of view, he's doing some advisory work for um, some clients, which is great. And um, I sit on a few boards. So we're not, we haven't got nothing to do, which is fantastic, but we can actually sort out um, the times that we do things. And, um, and that's, that's de-stressing us, which is lovely. We smile again. <laughs> <laughs> do you yeah. think your passions have changed over that? 45 year period like it's a very long time it is it is um ollie and um I, I think you know and it doesn't even matter what you're producing or doing or um it doesn't matter if you're you know producing sheep goats or, or oranges it's kind of um it's it's how you do it and so the passion for us was about how we how we do it or how we we do everything um we we really as a couple we really like each other which is wonderful and we love working together so that's been marvelous so 
it kind of whatever we do as long as that stays and that passion drove Palgrove the business um, very much because we were a team and um, the pair of us you know had different skills but we actually worked um, worked really well together and I, I think you know that makes life doesn't matter if it's business or whatever it is um, relationships it makes it the perfect example of what you know a good team should be um, enjoying being together and working well to create something bigger so that um, yeah that's definitely been um, Palgrove the business and now it's kind of well that phase is, has you know finished and um, you know the next part we need to make sure that you know, we both want the same things and can continue to work as a team. So, yeah, that's that's been really fun. And we have some very, um, you know, hilarious conversations about what that, that looks like. So, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think when you when you leave a business that's been, you know, almost um, 100%, 100, definitely 100% of your life, um, you sort of wake up the next day and think, you know, what, what, what am I to do now? And I remember I woke up when I... You know, my last last day and first day of, of the rest of my life, more or less, um, which was now 18 months ago, I woke up and actually um, turned on the TV and found a yoga program. <laughs> so I did, and I'd never done yoga before, but I thought, hang on, I've actually got time now to, to do these things. And it was really fun because you just, um, and still we pinch ourselves that um, we're no longer needed, um, you know, 100% of the time by a business. And um, that's that's just such a massive change. But the passion comes when you wake up every morning and you want to be doing that thing. Um, and, and so that's now changed to something else. Well, it's exciting. And I can't wait to see where it goes for you, Prue. I do want to jump back slightly. And so you, you didn't grow up on a farm. You grew up in Mount Morgan, so regional Queensland. <laughs> Yep, yep. Ollie, it's it's all out there in the in the public domain now. No, look, Mount Morgan's that fabulous little a fabulous little town in central Queensland that, um, um, and I don't know why, but um, you know, people always sort of have teased anyone from Mount Morgan, you know, from from sort of if you if you've come from there, and you know, looked for sort of two heads or or you know <laughs> bolts coming out of your neck or whatever it is. But it was such a great little town, and um, so I was no no I was a, I was a townie. Um, my father owned a, a business up there, and um, and and look, we didn't know any better. We just thought you know Mount Morgan and Rockhampton was sort of you know the end. You know, that was the end of the world at Rockhampton, and. Um, we just loved, you know, there was nowhere else. It was just fabulous. And then um, um, my parents, particularly my mother, um, said, you know, I'd really like you to go to go away to school. Um, and, you know, the school she chose was in um, Rockhampton. And, and I remember we went down there for an interview and and I won't say which school it was, but they they um, they served up sort of mouldy scones. And so, you know, that was it for mum. She said, well, no, if that's what they do on, you know, the interview day, um, God only knows what they'll feed you the rest of the time. So um, then, you know, she had a great friend in, in Brisbane um, who was headmistress of Clayford College. So she sent um, she sent me down there and, and I guess I didn't look back. It, um, it was just that, um, and a lot of bushy kids too, which was, sort of my first introduction to, you know, bushies from everywhere, um, uh, Northern Territory and sort of, you know, uh, New South Wales. And, and, and it was just, they were the kids that I, I guess I really related to and, and sort of were drawn to. And 
um, you know, of course, you always it's always the boarders versus the day the day kids, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and so that you know the boarders were definitely my tribe, and I, I really um, I really loved being part of their lives. You know, going on holidays and whatever up to their houses and and properties, and um, and and I didn't know it then, but um, you know I was going to end up on, in the bush, and I think. If you if you talk to any one of my friends from school, I just still roll their eyes, roll their eyes, and just sort of say, of, of all the people we know, Prue was not the one, not the one who was going to end up in the bush. So it's really quite. I'm quite proud of the fact that I survived. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, then um, you know, I, I dutifully went off to university, and it was always that thing that you know, girls' schools, you you were sort of you know you were given sort of you know, three or four choices, teacher, you know, um, nurse, um, doctor, lawyer kind of wasn't one of those choices. But um, we had a great friend actually from Mount Morgan. Um, there's a couple of very famous people from Mount Morgan, Stephen Moore, Wallaby Captain being one of them. And um, the other one was a, was a, a judge um, in the court system in Brisbane. And um, he said, you know, I think it'd be good for you to do law and um, come and work for me when you finish. Um, we'll, we'll sort of sort something out. So that was terrific. So that gave me a sort of a, a direction. Um, and I just loved it. I loved um, learning. I loved being in that environment where there were people, um, you know, who challenged things. I really, I guess I learned a lot of other things apart from the law in those years. So um, then I, I did go and work for my delightful judge and, um, and then it was sort of, you know, what do I do now? I remember sitting uh, sitting in court with him one morning on a Monday morning and I sort of had a bit of a hangover from the weekend and and um, I was watching the barristers because that was kind of the direction I was heading, watching the barristers do their thing. And and I remember looking at them thinking, oh, my God, I, they must never have a weekend of partying and because here they are on first thing on Monday morning. They know exactly what to say. They know all about these cases and um and I must admit, it was as shallow as that, that I, I thought, oh, maybe this isn't, isn't for me. <laughs> <laughs> Not willing to give up the weekend. I know. So that was fun. So then I went <laughs> off to, um, to work um, in a solicitor's firm for a while and then um, to AMP uh, where I kind of did um, securities work and then met my husband at BNS. So that's where it all sort of um, all changed. Should we go a bit deeper into the BNS days, Prue? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, well, you know, once again, college kids, yeah, the, the, the fun that was had back then was just, and it's obviously, you know, I'm sure it's different now, but the same. Um, but, you know, they were the days of if you could find the key to your car, you drove it. Um, you know, if, if, if you could sort of, you know, get to the lecture physically, you know, that was good enough. Uh, <laughs> fell asleep you know and those sorts of things were um that, that was just what life was and um you know we did go to a lot of bns's i was in the bushy crowd i suppose you'd say um back then too and you know we i got to see an awful lot of queensland and new south wales and um but you know this particular expedition was um, we we hired a little minivan <laughs> and uh, you know, the girls made sandwiches and um, and the boys brought the beers. I mean, this just, you just wouldn't even contemplate this now. But, you know, that was, the trip was just as much fun as the BNS. And, um, you know, of course, met this very handsome tall man from, from Delvine, which was really fun. And, um, yeah, the rest is history. So you, you met David. You've ended up moving out there. What jobs were available to you? Were you working on the farm or like? What was your yeah. your career going from 
on track to be a barrister, then really into corporate businesses. What was? Yeah, look, the shock was the shock was palpable almost. It was, um, you know, you'd had five years at university, you had all these skills. I was, um, you know, sort of ready to head off to Sydney to further the career, and um, and and so I was really pumped in a sort of a skilled way, I guess. And then, and then you sort of land on the doorstep, you know, after the honeymoon, and think, oh gosh, I'm just not sure. It was just really awkward, I think, for a couple of months. Um, and so I'd, I'd go out with David and I couldn't ride a horse. Um, so I learned to ride, thank you, thank you, my father-in-law. And they'd put me on a motorbike. I learned to ride a motorbike. Put me on a motorbike. But I was always the one who kind of, you know, we had sheep back then as well. And always the one who had to sort of, you know, follow the old um, stubborn news with her sort of twins and, and you know, sort of push them along and, and you know, be out there for four four hours while everyone was out back at having smoke. I'd be the last one. <laughs> <laughs> They used to call it the geriatric jobs that they gave me, which was fine because you were learning everything it was to learn right from the bottom up. Uh, I did have a part-time job um, in town working at AMP in town, but I found the hours just went really slowly. There was just um, anyone. Um, so I, I sort of focused a bit on, on um, and it was really physical outdoors sort of work and, and that's what everyone was doing then. So you sort of joined in, but... Um, you know, the shearing shed used to just make me just cringe with fear um, because the shearers, they, they used to scare me. But, um, you know, you'd sort of be picking up the wool and not doing it very quickly and they'd be sort of, you could hear this sort of growl come from the shearers. Oh, God, I used to get so stressed. Um, and, you know, then as, as I got older, I realised that they weren't so bad after all. But, um, yeah, you always <laughs> felt incapable. Um, and, and that was the worst feeling for me. I hated that that feeling of not being able to do things well. And I used to bemoan the fact that I, I didn't do ag science or I didn't do um, vet or whatever. It would have been far more useful. But I guess um, I guess history then told me that the things I had learned at university and, and, and then as a, as a lawyer, I suppose, they actually really helped um, with a different way to think about things, um, to question things, to challenge, to to actually um, to get things organised um, in, a, in a sort of a logical way. And, and I mean, they seem like soft skills, but actually they were just so um, useful on farm and, and to build the business then. And, and I remember, you know, the, I used to sort of get a bit of the artwork to do for, for ads for the bull sales and, you know, I'd come up with a really clever thing like let's put blue in there or you know, let's change that font or... And, and so then a love of marketing, um, you know, that began too. So, yeah, it was kind of a um, very organic growth of my skills on, <laughs> on farm and in the business. But um, I think in the end, it, it kind of, that was where the teamwork started. Um, I knew I, I wasn't the best person to, to be, you know, doing um, farm sort of husbandry and whatever. So I, I, can't, I can't, had to develop those other skills in order to, to be useful. Hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. 
If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. I'm really glad you bring up that point around kind of coming from a different background mm-hmm. and then finding your areas that you are really useful, but kind of that different angle that you're bringing to the table. Today, you sit on a number of boards, but how is that different background that many years ago you kind of begrudged and yeah. weren't a fan of? How's that actually set you up for success today? Yeah, I, I, I think and if I, you know, if I look at what skills I have now, I know that I can read something really quickly and understand it and, um, and then improve it or, um, you know, churn it out to what it should mean or, you know, it, I can get an answer from something and I can, I can read 100 pages of something and, and, and I know that that's a skill because I know my husband hasn't got that skill and he says, oh, you know, I wish I could, you know, could do that and I said, well, I, you know, I wish I could shear a sheep too. But, you know, and so that was one of those things. And so I, I used to draft a lot of stuff and then I sort of, you know, started um, writing a lot of editorial sort of stuff. And so that was a skill. Um, the other thing is that kind of different thinking, and, and I think that carries through um, now. I, I like, and I, I'm, you know, we had a conversation yesterday where I'm questioning how we do things knowing now what we know compared to how, what we knew, you know, 10 or 20 years ago as we sort of start this new on-farm um, production, how we look after the environment, how we kind of, you know, um, deal with our animals and 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 so that's all a different way of thinking and it's a question mark behind every everything I sort of ask now to David is you know okay we used to put that much fertilizer on our property what else can we do and how can we do it differently and and that I think um, comes from that challenging questioning lawyer in me always um, but it also is an evolution of um, of expertise and, and a bit of knowledge that you pick up, you know, from everybody. Um, and that is so invaluable that to use that and not to just do things, um, I guess, the, you know, the same way as we always did them. And and I must admit, you know, a couple of boards that I I probably did sit on and do sit on, I, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed with um, how much knowledge everyone on those boards has. And, you know, sometimes... Um, you know, you have to sort of play a bit of catch up, but I know that eventually I'll get there. Um, you know, first few meetings might be a bit hairy, um, and you sort of, you know, doing that hot sweat, thinking, "God, I hope no, the chairman doesn't ask me my opinion because I have no idea what they're talking about." Um, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but it's like that fake it till you make it thing. Uh, but I, I know that I'll eventually get there. And I'm, and one example of that is is you know, Live Corp. Um, I'm on the Live Corp board, but I, I haven't got a background in live export. Um, but but I hope now that I've, I'm making a contribution um, to, to a way of thinking rather than you can always ask the detail, and I think that's that's kind of what I've learned. You can always ask the detail. So um, it's kind of um, in your mind, you know, you, you know what a good outcome looks like too, and 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 then you've just got to kind of get yourself there or get your board there, and and, and I keep asking now and I think that's what we did in business what's the outcome we want and then let's and it's an overused term reverse engineering but if you reverse engineer it you'll you'll actually you can do anything you know you can almost do anything in any industry if you know what that outcome looks like 
and or what your client wants or whatever it is or what the government wants or what you know your live exporters want if you know what needs to be done you then work out how to get there and and i think that make that it, it's a simple plan for, for anything and particularly for boards yeah i'm, I'm intrigued in that so uh- a lot of our listeners are in their 20s and they won't be in the decision-making seats in businesses. But how can someone coming through the ranks show leadership in the sense of around how do they push for that clarification in terms of what it is you're trying to do? But yeah, how, how can someone who's not necessarily the decision-maker um, guide that process? I, and I've, I've talked to a couple of people. I'm, I'm on a mentoring um I do a bit of mentoring with Beef Connections first time this year and just had a ball doing that. And, and that question comes up a lot. Um, you know, we haven't got, we have, if you're 25 years old, you haven't got that sort of history, that that experience, that, but but it, it works the same way, Ollie. It, it works in that if you know, if you know where you want to get to, it, it's a matter of sometimes being incremental about things too. Um, I find a lot of, um, certainly a lot of younger people just need to, you know, they want to get to that um, that finish line really quickly because that's what you guys do. You, you know, you do, you, you, your world moves really fast. Um, whereas for some of us, it, you know, it took 20 years or 10 years to get to, to that end end line. And, and I think that's kind of the advice I like to give is, you know, you, in, if, if you're heading on a path, don't be afraid to do those little those little um, take the Y or the or stop at the T junction and take a left or a right. You know, there's there's never a clear path to anything that you do, and sometimes you know you s- just stop and think, well, actually, um, is leadership in this role something I really want, or is it something that I think I should have or aspire to because someone told me that? So it's it's you know forever looking at yourself and looking at. Um, and not everyone's a leader either. And, and I think that's really important. We we hear so much about, you know, leadership workshops and leadership opportunities and leadership this and at, at 25, no one's expecting you to lead a company or to lead a, um, a you know, a team or whatever. It, it, it's an internal leadership. It's a, it's a telling yourself that you want to do something better or telling yourself that you want to take responsibility for something. And that's leadership. So I think this whole sort of view of, you know, what leadership should look like in your 20s and 30s is becoming a bit skewed by the need to get there too quickly. And 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 at the end of the day, it's actually, you, all you're doing is building confidence. You're kind of, um, you, you're building confidence that you can go to the next step. And then when you're at that next step, you can build more confidence to go to that next step. But very few people get that opportunity to do those, um, you know, those massive life-changing leaps into leadership it, it I mean and it probably happens to some people I don't know anyone who that happened to I'm the leaders that I look at now certainly in our industry they took a while to get there and they worked really hard to get there um, on on the basis that they they had a lot to learn you've come into the industry over the last 45 years there's been a really really big change in terms of and I'd say even just the last few years the likes of Fiona Simpson really pushing the agenda of we need more diverse people in management and leadership roles in industry. Have you felt supported through your journey of that or what have been some of the challenges for you? You know what, Ollie, I, I think um, I wouldn't have except, and, and it's probably what I referred to before, I was a bit different. And mm-hmm. so I wasn't the farmer's wife 
which, I mean, to a lot of people I was, but I think people who got to know me realised that I had a, an opinion of my own. I had a thought process that I went through that was different to my husband's. And But, but back in the early days, I did, I mean, there were so many um, committee appointments or board appointments or whatever that I did feel like the token woman. And, and that's a really horrible feeling for a female um, that you were put there uh, because they needed the numbers or and, and I mean, one board in particular, I know that's what I was there for and, and I hated it, but I then, you know, jumped on my horse and, and sort of said, well, actually, I'm going to run with this and prove that I, I belong here. Um, and they were back in the very early days and, and you do build a sort of a, a reputation or whatever to as to, you know, how you operate and, and that um, that helps to build further, um, further appointments and whatever. Um, I, I'm on a board now that there's four women and, and, and one man. And, um, you know, that's crazy. That's great. It's a government board, of course, but um, it, it, it's, it doesn't mean, it doesn't make any difference. So diversity to me comes from diversity, not so much the male, female age thing or, you know, race or whatever it is. It comes in thinking. So, you know, say, for example, there's someone on your board that all they think about is risk. And, you know, this is terrible. You can't do that because it's too risky. Or they've got a sort of a background in managing risk. And, and so that's great. Um, that's not my forte. I like that sort of let's plough ahead and sort of see how we go. Then you'll have someone who's there because, you know, they're a visionary big thinker. So it's kind of those, to me, boards operate so much better when you've got that sort of diversity um, and, and it's, you know, skills, yes, but it's also attitude and, and you know, um, those personality types, all of that. So when you sort of say, oh, you know, we've got three women on the board and, sort of, you know, three men and, and that's great and two from New South Wales and one from Western Australia, it, it doesn't, it just doesn't create a really good outcome. And um, so I've always sort of thought, you know, when, when I look around, a, a, you know, and I do a bit of DD um, on boards before I agree to, to be on there. And if that doesn't look right to me um, now, I'm just as happy to leave it. But having said that, you know, I'm, I'm on a, an ad tech, tech board with um, gorgeous girls from um, Black Box Co. And I mean, you know, my ad tech skills are probably, you know, put on one fingernail, but, um, but it's <laughs> kind of... You know, they've got this incredibly diverse board that um, that provides that advice. You know, it's a startup company providing solid advice. Um, everyone on that board has seen or um, been part of something, you know, bigger and successful. I mean, it's just fabulous. So, you know, once again, it doesn't matter who's on the board, it's how they think. And, um, and that's probably a priority for me now, you know, as I become... A little, a little selective about what I do every day now, and and you want to be there. You don't want to sort of say, oh, bless it, I've got a you know board meeting next week, and um, you you want to look forward to that. And and the only way to do that is to have a really vibrant, good thinking group of people. And I and I think you know some of the representative sort of organisations, it, it'd be really good to sort of restructure their thinking in terms of of that, you know, rather than. Um, member representation of different regions or whatever it, it, and I was on a board um, you know way back um, where that and I think it is still the case um, that representation and it's really tiring it's just it doesn't work as well as it should um, because you don't have that sort of diversity of skills you got people looking out for their pockets yes and whatever yeah it's and and once again it's it's that sort of tribal regional thing and and um Certainly the beef industry that, you know, I'm involved in, um, 
that just that just you know it does it crosses borders it crosses regions it crosses supply chain too you know and um i did a um i did some work with the sustainability beef sustainability framework um and a little bit uh, humble there i think you oh (laughs) chaired the beef sustainability framework and that that's another another sort of um really exciting part of my life doing that um but once again, you know, there were not representatives there from regions, or but but there was representation across the supply chain. But across that, there were really diverse, good-thinking people who, um, you know, who just wanted to see this, see this, you know, work. Can you tell me? And I'm glad you've, you'd make a very good conduit here. So, <laughs> what were the outcomes of the beef sustainability framework? Because I'd love to narrow in on a few of what they were and where the industry is at and what they're trying to achieve on that sustainability lens yeah so so when we um you know there'd been a sort of a i guess a little bit of controversy before i took over um as the chair um and it was an inaugural committee too which um you know was troublesome um because you you couldn't just get on and do your job you had to actually justify um you know the reason for being for starters and then you had to you know get on and and try and produce a framework so um, there'd been a bit of controversy and, and, you know, people have different opinions about where Australia should sit in terms of sustainability and probably the environment um, creates the biggest angst for people because, um, you know, we're naturally very protective about um, the practices we have or the things we do. or And so that's understandable. Um, but what we had to do is, you know, the rest of the world was kind of um, moving, moving ahead um, with their sustainability frameworks. And so Australia was kind of a bit late to the party. Um, I had a most incredible um, young, I can't call her a young girl, a young woman from um, MLA, Pip Band. And Pip and I sort of, you know, uh, she was in, she was the secretariat um, from MLA who was sort of charged with, I think, looking after me more than anything, um, <laughs> giving me in time. But no, no, she was just brilliant and she had this wealth of knowledge and she was so passionate about it. So we had this incredible year of, um, you know, doing the consultative work, um, talking to, you know, processors, customers, food groups, um, you know, retailers, producers, feedlotters, all of that. And and it was really interesting in those conversations. And I think we had, in the end, I think we had about 70 of them. Um, It was just massive, but really enjoyable. And at the end of it, I guess I just saw you know, what's the purpose of all of this if we don't get it right for the consumer and, and, and meet those consumer expectations? So whatever we were doing right back here in producer land, none of it mattered if, 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 the, if it wasn't meeting, you know, these requirements that our, our consumer who eat our beef uh, or, you know, lamb or whatever it was, if, if we're not meeting that, I mean, it just doesn't matter what we do because it's never going to be, it's never going to be acceptable. So... That was kind of the premise that you know we you know I think we worked on and and it was really challenging because we were still getting a lot of pushback from I mean from everyone in the industry but more particularly from from producers because I think producers probably thought they had the most to lose and were actually they had the most to gain and and that's you know the truth and I think it says a lot about our industry that you know we are a little bit fractured and you know we're all sort of looking after our own part. Of, of the supply chain, but, you know, we rely on each other so much. We are, you know, entrenched with each other's businesses and, um, you know, the sooner we can do that, the better. But but I remember I, I attended a McDonald's conference, which was um, just the most incredible. 
amazing thing I'd ever done in my life and um, in Orlando and Florida and I remember sort of get, having to get up and talk um, in, in all of the, the global roundtable people were sort of there and, and every country had their view of the framework and how they would do it and and um, you know we were sort of thinking that we might have been a bit left behind at that stage but you know we were just you know everyone just thought what we were doing was so incredible because we'd got managed to get all of the supply chain you know in the committee on the committee and, and under the same umbrella and talking together and a lot of under, other countries were just sort of working basically with farmers so that was exciting we came back with a kick in our step and um so then we provided a report and we sort of focused on four areas um, that we thought we should as as um, an industry um sort of concentrate on and, and that's still that's still the case today so then you know what we found was we were missing an awful lot of information and data and so the next stage was to, to fill in try and fill in those gaps so that we could get a baseline of where we're at and you can't improve unless you have that baseline and and you know it was a lot of the stuff was there that's the thing a lot of a lot of data is there. It's just a matter of extracting it and making use of it um, in the best possible way and for the right reasons. And, and I think, you know, everyone's very protective of their profitability and, and, and you know, in processing and feedlots and, you know, in production. But if we just were a little more transparent and shared a bit more of that, I mean, God, what an industry we'd have. Um, and, and I think, you know, for us, that frustration, you know, turned into absolute joy when we were able to get everyone together. Um, to start to talk as, as one, as one industry. So I know that, um, you know, and, and there's, the, the committees change as they need different skills on the committee. And it's changed again, I think, at the end of last year and Mark's taken over now as chair. So each part of the framework process will have different sort of outcomes that it needs to achieve. But um, That's quite cool. Like a, a very dynamic process in terms of, yeah, not just being like, okay, it's a four-year goal this is what we're working towards it's making it dynamic and actually changing putting the right people in the right seats to achieve the outcome yeah absolutely and look you know and and I mean what happens is nothing is constant um you know you, you sort of you can't tick off and say that's done because as you know um consumer expectations change um what people like to eat changes how they view um, particularly sustainability is changing at such a rapid rate that, um, you know, we, if we thought we were ahead of it, which I don't think we were, um, we are well behind it now. Like we're, we're playing catch up again now because, you know, the, 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 t- the talk of sustainability across so many aspects of, um, of consumer life is just, I mean, it's just mind boggling. Um, Listen to a, a podcast the other day about, a handbag manufacturer she's obviously a very fashionable person I've never heard of it but um and she she's wanting to produce sustainable sustainable leather um handbags so she said you know and that process has actually taken her to three different countries to enable her to do that you know and so that's just crazy stuff and and I know that all of the luxury brand motor cars are you know, you pay an extra $8,000, I think it is, um, to Mercedes to have a vegan, to have a vegan um, cover on your, on your seats in a car. So if we don't stay ahead, we're just going to be left behind. But there's, there's some really incredible, um, around the world, there's some really small localised things happening in terms of that local processing and sustainable production, all that sort of thing. But I think Australia has to be really 
careful to kind of make sure we're a big industry and make sure that we get it right as a whole industry because if there's a little weak link in the chain, that's it, it's not doing us any good, anyone. Um, so anyway, it's a bit of a passion. So um, no, I love it. And it's sorry to go on about that. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing because I guess I'm going on a little tangent here now, prove it. I've been looking at getting some merch, so different T-shirts and jumpers and hats and things made up. But I was like, well, actually, I want it to align with the values and the ethics that I'm trying to set as a business here, which is around how's agriculture shaping a world that's happier, healthier and more prosperous. But so I don't want to use the polyester fibers. So I'm trying to find Mm. cotton T-shirts or cotton jumpers or woolen jumpers or whatever it might be. But how does that then, you pay the price for it. And it's like, well, actually... Mm -hmm do the people who follow the podcast and maybe we'll put it out there, but the people who are following this humans of agriculture platform, are they willing to support that? And are they willing to pay in that way? And then I think the balance is like when, when you look at, I guess our audience is probably slightly different to the everyday Australian, but the, the fundamentals of living, like people just want to be able to afford food that's healthy and nutritious. And that comes in certain ways and they want to wear clothes that fit them. And like, it's, it's such a challenge when it comes to this space. And, and, you know, you don't want to be that sort of greenwash hypocrite either, do you, Ollie? It's, um, you know, if you believe in something and, and you want to make it a better place, you actually have to do that. And, mm. and I think that was always the challenge in, that, um, in the sustainability framework because you talk to retailers and they would tell you that price, you know, mints, basically price will always sort of, you know, for a certain percentage of, um, of their customers will always be their priority. And... So I guess what you're doing is you're kind of, you're, you're aiming, you're not aiming at a bottom sort of, you know, 25% or even a bottom 50%. I think you're aiming and, you know, Australia is a premium producer. Um, we have to keep up in that, that premium production um, place. And if we don't, we'll, we'll be back to commodity and back to, to price setting, uh, price taking. Um, so I think it's, you make a decision when you choose what you pay for a t-shirt or whatever so that decision will help guide you know where your money goes and you know if it's in a sustainable sort of production of cotton and all the rest um you've made a statement made a choice and and i think consumers make that choice every day but there is a price to pay for it and i i mean it's it's like anything you could never your your product or your um, service will never appeal to everybody so you actually have to work out well who do we want to appeal to and 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 you know that that sort of top um you know t- certainly 25 percent of the spending dollar around the world now it, it's nothing but sustainability um, so we'd be fools not to pursue that i'm going to follow up on that because otherwise i could take you off on a complete tangent just <laughs> following my own self-interest but what's the role of of the beef industry in this changing conscious consumer period where it's all things at a, at a diet level of people wanting to either cut down or eat more red meat, depending on where you look um, at an environmental level. What's the role of the beef industry going forward in this? I, I think we've got a lot to lose if we don't get this right, um, Ollie. And, you know, from a whole lot of perspectives, it has evolved that, um, you know, beef production is bad for the environment. I mean, we know that's not right, but that's that's the message that has evolved. Now, to unravel that now is is tougher than it was, um, you know, five years ago. And in another five years, that's going to be tougher again because that's the evolution and that's the conversation. I know 
um, particularly in the UK, they're having a lot of conversations about, you know, getting people who are well-respected, who understand, um, who properly understand sustainability and environmental management to talk on our behalf. And when I say our behalf, the beef industry's behalf, um, to sort of get those champions who um, have respect from other aspects of their life that they're actually used to tell the right story. And, and I think it's really essential. And it's things like these podcasts that, um, you know, if we could get these sorts of things out to the general public, out to the city public, um, and it is mostly, um, you know, probably your generation and sort of, you know, everyone, anyone at high school doesn't want to eat beef because it's just, you know, it's terrible and it becomes a sort of a... Um, a knowledge status oh well I know that beef doesn't you know isn't produced sustainably so I'm not going to sort of or it's bad for the environment so that gives someone a personal status that they are you know they can use socially I think and 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 that's a really dangerous place because there's never any fact involved in that Mm. Um, so those influences that we need to use they're not people who talk back to the beef industry. They're kind of people who who talk to a, a general, a more general sort of in, a general lump consumer. And and I think unless we start to look, we're very good at talking to ourselves and convincing ourselves that we're heroes and you know do the right thing and and um, um, you know we're you know we're great producers and we're well. We kind of know that. We don't need to tell ourselves that. So it's really important to, to get someone to tell that story to, to an outside um, listener. Mm. And I think, you know, through that that sort of, you know, and their conferences and, um, you know, more people discussing the, the benefits of beef as a, as a healthy alternative and, a um, you know, part of your diet has to have some, you know, beef in it because it's got iron and, you know, red meat's good for you and at certain levels and, it's kind of a, um, it's getting out what we all know, but, but making it just the right people telling that story. And it's not a producer, it's not a processor, it's not a feedlotter. Um, and, and I know that a lot of these, you know, a lot of the case studies that MLA have on their, um, their website are fantastic and they tell great stories about what people are doing, but I don't know too many um, consumers who go onto the MLA website to get their information. So we've got to actually look at different ways to provide that information to those those people who are sort of a, I mean, they're only, they're only just jumping because they think it's socially um, the right thing to do, not because they have any better knowledge than anyone else. And, um, you know, you, you sort of see it with um, certainly influencers on Instagram and whatever who, um, you know, wear a certain dress and so then everyone goes and buys that dress and whatever. It's the same thing, you know. I'm having yeah. a really nice beef meal, and I, I know it's been sustainably produced. And but having said that, you, you, you kind of have to have it sustainably produced. You can't be halfway. You can't. You, you're either sustainable or you're not. You're either doing a, a great job in the environment or you're not. You're either cog, um, cognizant of of good animal welfare or you're not, you can't be halfway. And, and, and I think that's what the beef industry might have done is we've kind of thought, oh, well, if we do a little bit, they'll be okay. Um, but, but we can't. We've, we've got to think all the time, well, what's, what's the outcome of this? What's the downside of this? What's the, is this sustained? Ask that question all the time. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, profitability. I mean, we're all in a sort of a rosy patch now, but 
the droughts will come again and, and um, you know, fire will come again and flood and all of the rest. But, you know, it's it's keeping them in mind well, what's profitable to, to my business. Um, if, I've, if I'm doing all of these things, how do I keep it profit, profitable? So it's pretty complex. But, um, but, you know, to me, it's telling the story differently. Like everyone says, oh, we need to tell our story. Well, we do, but tell it differently. Sure. Audience, yeah. And I think, yeah, it's it's such a huge beast, isn't it? And it, and it's one of the things that I see that agriculture as an industry, or just say food, can't address in your individual groups because mm. other like there's always going to be people who will be able to pick apart, say, mm. um, if you're a beef producer, well, someone will be able to pick apart an aspect of it. But if you can bring it back mm. to well, what we're talking about is food, and today mm. we're talking about horticulture and um fruit and veggies and then we're talking about meat and proteins and you actually start to bring everything together through a platform and this is what i'm trying to do i guess because it's like well actually yes we're we're talking about the role of feedlots and the beef industry here but then on the flip side of that we're going to be talking about fruit and veggies and then we're going to talk about aquaculture how do you bring all those different elements together because people then can't say oh we're not we're not supporting you as an Mm. industry because you say well actually (laughs) Yes, you are, because you have to eat. You've got to choose to eat something, and we're actually providing a platform which is bringing those conversations and those perspectives to you. We're not saying go and eat red meat or go and eat more fruit and veggies. We're just saying here's the information. Go and make a decision, and at least it's from an informed point of view. Absolutely. And and I can, I mean, that's that's the dream for me is kind of, you know, every industry and I know Cotton's done it and and sheep have done it. Everyone's got these sort of sustainability um, either frameworks, dairy industries done it. So, so then actually what do you do with it? Do you keep, um, you know, just sort of working through it as, as individual industries? And I know that NFF is, is um, now sort of, you know, asserting that they're putting together um, sustainability um, framework for agriculture, which is really, it's almost back the front. Um, you know, we probably should have started there and, and, and then sent everyone off to do their industry and then bring that back. Uh, back under the NFF um, banner, but you know, hopefully we can see something that's food and fibre, and and this is how we're going to produce it um, in Australia because this is how we do it. And you know, that's that's the dream. I hope I hope I live long enough to kind of see that and come to fruition. Because <laughs> I, mean, I reckon it will take a while. Everyone, um, you know, every industry, you know, has their own um, has their own challenges, and and. But then there's so many challenges that we all have that in common, and uh, one of which is that environmental, um, you know, management. It doesn't matter if you're an irrigator, you know, with with citrus or, or cotton or whatever, you know, that's an environmental issue that you've got, and, and a cattle producer will have the same clean water issue, um, you know, at the in, it run off to the reef. So it's, I mean, if if we just accepted that. And we do it so well with young people. Like, we, you know, we encourage our young people to sort of all be involved as a, you know, young rural people or young ag- agricultural sort of representatives or whatever. But actually as industries, we don't do it so well coming under mm. the same, that same umbrella. But, it, it you know, it it has to happen that way. And I think NFF obviously is, the, you know, is probably the right structure to do that. Mm, it seems to make sense. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to round out with a few questions for you, Prue. Uh, firstly, I, I want to know what's why are you still involved in agriculture? Forty-five odd years down the track of your own business, you sit on all these different boards. You're passionate about regional Australia. 
So mm. why are you still involved in agriculture today? Look, I just really like it. I must <laughs> really, I remember I was asked to do, and I'll do this really quickly, asked to do a career night um, back at school. And it was when I was a farmer, was about two or three years in, into, you know, being a farmer. And I remember there was no one at my store, at my stand. There was zero, no one came, some little girl who came and said, oh, yes, my mother knows your mother or something, and that's all good. Um, but, you know, there were lawyers and accountants and teachers and whatever there, and everyone wanted to be um, or talk to those people because that was kind of, you know, the way that everyone wanted to go in their career. The total reverse has happened now. Um, I, I spoke at a group of um, women in agriculture group the other day, and most of them were, women, you know, female um, accountants and lawyers and um, valuers and whatever, and they all just want to be part of agriculture. So I actually thought a lot about that and not, in, you know, passionate about wanting to be, whereas, you know, that was quite the opposite um, because it just meant you had dirty fingernails sort of back in the, back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, there, there's been a shift and and I think, you know, as an older person in the industry too, that I've really enjoyed that shift. You know, um, there were times when we were really embarrassed to say we were farmers, when something dreadful had happened or, um, you know, and you were you were going to be associated. Well, we were sort of, oh, yes, we're and, and then saying things like, we're only just farmers. We don't ever say that anymore. And it's just, I don't even know what the shift has been, but there's been this celebration of agriculture and we need to sort of harness young people to come in now because it's really, you know, um, really part of that. But it was really tough to get anyone into, into ag, um, you know, well, 15 years ago, most definitely, but now it's so exciting. So I love being part of that. Certainly. A, a different title at the moment. A question I ask everyone, Prue, that comes on, you get the chance to go and talk to some year 10 students. Why should they consider a career in agriculture? I think because of the diversity, you know, you, you can be involved in agriculture anywhere from on farm, you know, to, to a CEO boardroom, um, it, it, in, in a boardroom. And it's, it, that's the excitement. No matter what skill set you have, agriculture will welcome you. And, and, that's not the same in finance or, you know, in, in teaching or whatever. And, and I think that's it. It's the diversity. You, your opportunities um, don't go on a, on a nice path, a career pathway. They, you've got these, you know, you've got choices the whole way through. And, um, and I think, you know, for me, that's what living is all about, having those choices and sort of doing something different um, to what your original path might have sort of set you on. A question from a recent guest. He's a beef producer in southwest Victoria. He's 40 years old. He did say busted ass, but he's definitely not busted ass. So um, he's, he's running the operation alongside his wife and her family. Hmm. What should he be focusing on for the next five years? 40-year-old. Um, looking, depending on what sort of stage, I guess. But it is all about that end, that end game. Like, no matter what part of the supply chain you're at, you're always thinking about consumer but then you're always thinking about, well, who's going to buy what I'm what I'm producing in order to provide that to the consumer? And it all just whittles back. So what I would be focusing on is making sure that what he's producing, going out and seeing every day that he's seen now for probably 10 years, is exactly what he should be producing and does it meet whatever those expectations are. And there's just no way around that. The other thing would be, am I doing, the, am I hand on heart doing this? Uh, production um, the very best way I can do it or am I just doing it the way I've always done it and that's a question you should ask yourself every morning when you wake up um, 
and, and, you know, get those finances under control, make sure you're, you know, whether it's read the barefoot investor or, you know, the richest man in Babylon, read something that gives you that insight into good financial management. Um, um, that's really key because it helps in the bad times as well as the good. One final one. What's a question you've got that you'd like me to ask a future guest? Um, I don't know. I think, I, think, um, I think it's really important for me to know that your guests can reflect on their lives. And if they reflect on their life, has it been everything they wanted it to be? And you might be 30 and, and asking that question of yourself, but, um, but do it every so often. You know, reflect on your life. Is, it, is this what I wanted in life? Um, and if it isn't, can I change it now? hope you guys enjoyed that chat with Prue. I think a few things that stood out for me was the importance of teamwork, how the partnership that they've created together has just seen them achieve some really remarkable things. But also not being tied to a certain decision or point or yeah, having the end point in mind but then actually working your way back from it. I think as Prue talks, how her passion has changed and evolved throughout her career, I think one thing which will really probably stick with our audience is how she found her voice, her feet in the ag sector and much to the surprise of many of her friends and family, has gone on to be an incredibly influential person so many people look up to. I'm really excited to share that Evoke Ag is happening again in 2023. It's been a little while since we had the chance to get everyone face to face, but 21st to the 22nd of Feb 2023 in Adelaide, South Australia is the place to be. If you're interested in attending the two-day full-scale global event or partnering, visit evokeag.com for more details. Look after yourself, guys. Stay safe, stay sane, and we'll chat to you soon.